History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 323rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Hey, Kelly. We are both absolutely exhausted, aren't we? <laughs> Indeed, we are. <laughs> we are doing this episode on Kangaroo Island. Before we get into talking about that, I just want to let everybody know that Kelly has been out of town for a few days visiting her family back in California, and she got in what did we get home at 2.30 in the morning last night? Yes. After I picked up at the airport. Oh my God, I'm wrecked. <laughs> I'm sure you are too. And then you went out and worked. Yeah. So you were not here to record the bulk of the show, but I wanted to include you in a little bit of it. So you're here for the little intro and our ending type thing. Thank you. <laughs> but what we're going to be talking about on this episode is Kangaroo Island. And this, of course, was inspired because of all those horrible bushfires. Uh, it's so terrible. That are going on down there in Australia. Yeah. It really is amazing. And I was watching some of the news coverage and they mentioned that they were getting ready to evacuate. I don't know if they'd made a mandatory yet, but I think they were getting ready to people who lived on Kangaroo Island. And I went, well, that sounds like a really cool place. So I looked it up and sure enough, it had some ghosts connected. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do an episode on that one. Certainly. Before we get into talking about that, though, we have some people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Brittany with two T's, Maddie with an I-E, Alicia, and I've never seen it spelled this way. I hope that's how you say it. It's E-L-Y-S-H-A. I saw that one. That's so awesome. I love that spelling. Hunter, Lisa, Tanya, Jacob, Sarah with an H, Amanda, Jenny with a Y, Chelsea spells her name uniquely as well. C-H-E-L-C-I-E. Right. And she's actually from down under. Oh, perfect. Rachel, Elia, and Laura. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by April Marie. You've all probably heard of bog bodies before. These are human bodies that have been mummified in peat bogs and are found in Europe. But did you know that Florida has its own bog bodies? A construction crew was working in Windover, Florida in 1982, building a new subdivision about halfway between Disney World and Cape Canaveral. A man was working a backhoe to empty out the muck from a pond when he stumbled upon a great archaeological find. There were 167 bodies in a pond and researchers from Florida State University were stunned when they found out that their estimate that these were 600-year-old Native American bones turned out to be wrong. Radiocarbon dating put the bones at nearly 8,000 years old. The Florida bog bodies are different from European bog bodies in that they have no flesh left on the bones, but they do have their brain material still in the skull. This meant that the bodies were buried quickly. Most were found in the fetal position, lying on their left sides with their heads pointed to the west. To hold the bodies in the muck pond, whomever buried them drove a stake through the fabric that enshrouded the bodies. 
The archaeologists found signs that the community cared for their injured, and toys were made for the children who were buried with them. Contents in the stomachs showed that medicinal herbs were being used to perhaps cure illnesses. This was a hunter-gatherer group that existed before the pyramids in Egypt were built, and DNA revealed that they were not related in any way to other Native American groups found in that area, and that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. This month in history was suggested by Jenny Lynn Rains. In the month of January, on the 16th, in 1858, a team of people left San Francisco to begin laying out the stagecoach stations for the Butterfield-Overland Mail Route. The route was named for John Butterfield, a man awarded the Overland Mail Company contract by the Postmaster General. He had 37 years of experience and was well-suited for the task. The stagecoach service operated from 1858 to 1861. The really fascinating part of this is that this route actually started as the Osage Trace, which was a trail used by the Native Americans for hunting migration. In 1836, the part of this trail that stretched between Versailles, Missouri, and Fayetteville, Arkansas became known as the Fayetteville Road. Telegraph lines were added along the route in 1860. The name would change to Telegraph Road. Another name change came during the Civil War when it was used by troops moving between Missouri and Arkansas, and they started calling it the Military Road. When the war was over, the name The Wire Road started being used, again referencing the important telegraph lines. These lines, as we know, became obsolete, and so the name became Old Wire Road. So if you live near an Old Wire Road, you now know why it has the unusual name and the important history behind it. Kelly and I have watched, along with the rest of the world, as fire has devastated the entire country of Australia in 2019 and 2020. Fire renews, but it destroys everything in its wake before that renewal, and the tragic statistics have been devastating. The fires have raged for over six months. Thousands of homes have been destroyed. Dozens of people are dead. Millions of acres are scorched. And the worst statistic is that nearly a billion animals are estimated to have been killed. One of the places hit hard is Kangaroo Island. Nearly half of the island has been burned. This is a beautiful place and is one of Australia's largest islands. There is a rich history here, incorporating both the Aboriginal people, the settlers who made this their home, and the treacherous waters that surround the island. All of these have contributed to reports of unexplained events and hauntings. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Kangaroo Island. The first time we heard about hauntings on Kangaroo Island was in December of 2019 when a listener in Australia named Kathy wrote to us. She wrote, Then in April this year, I went to Kangaroo Island off Adelaide, South Australia. 
It was mid-avo, and I was having a little rest, and I'd placed some books I'd brought in the little inbuilt bookcase when some of the books, not all of them, flew out of the bookcase and plonked on the ground. I didn't see the event, but definitely heard it. So I got up, and as I picked my books up, I said, Whoever is here with me, you're welcome to stay, but you aren't to do this anymore. And they didn't do any further actions. Now, I'm not sure exactly what location Kathy was in, but when I started looking into reports of spirits, I found a few. But before we get into that, let's lay the groundwork for any good investigation and look at the history. Matthew Flinders was a navigator and scientist who was born in England in 1774. He was inspired to become an explorer after reading Robinson Crusoe and joined the Navy to facilitate this goal. He worked his way up in rank and attained commander in February of 1801. He was given the HMS Investigator to command with instructions to explore the South Australian coastline, referred to at the time as the Unknown Coast. Before he left, he married Anne Chapel and intended to take her with him, but he was not allowed and the couple would be separated for nine years. Flinders first hit Cape Leeuwin in December of 1801 and continued sailing eastward to the western extreme of the unknown coast. In March of 1802, Flinders found Kangaroo Island and gave the island its name because of the western gray kangaroo that they found there. French explorer Nicolas Baden mapped out the island and was the first to circumnavigate it. But as is the case with most places that Europeans eventually settled, they were not the ones who discovered the island, nor were they the first to call it home. There are archaeologists who believe that Aboriginal people may have been here starting 16,000 years ago and remained until 2,000 years ago. They called the island Karta, which meant Island of the Dead. Because nobody really knows who these Aboriginal groups were, I can't really tell you who they were. Settlers in southern Australia grouped all of the indigenous people under the term Garanjeri, which means belonging to men. We want to be clear here that this is like saying Native Americans in the U.S. There are many different tribes and they have particular distinctions, and that is the same in Australia. They're called clans there, though. Some of these related family groups, and I'm going to butcher these names, so I apologize now, include the Jari del Cald, Tegani Cald, Mintak, and Ramanjeri. Other clan groups not lumped into the Garanjeli that were from nearby Adelaide are the Korna and Paranmank. The Paranmank were wiped out, save for a bit of DNA that can still be traced. I would venture to guess that some of their ancestors were on Kangaroo Island. A really neat fact about these Aboriginal groups is that they have these things called dreaming stories. One of these stories from the Paramank is about Gilbrook, who was described as the water and fire man. He went through the territory marking off boundaries, and the Mount Lofty Ranges are said to have been formed from his body. The Mount Lofty Range was also said to be formed from the body of Urubila, the giant. The story of the Minka bird tells of Mount Barker and a little bird who lived there that would announce the approach of visitors. The Minka would also work like a banshee and that its call could signal the death of a loved one. And there's a story about Gano the giant. His son was murdered, and Gano journeyed far and wide to find the murderers. While he was traveling, he named the places he passed through and also formed rivers, which he filled with fish. He eventually did find the murderers and killed them and decided to return home. The journey had changed him greatly, and his people almost didn't recognize him. They feared him and ran into the sea where they transformed into sea creatures. They called out things like, I am a whale, and I am a shark, and that is what they would become. Some of Gano's people did not recognize him at all, and they killed him. And when he fell, 
part of his body made up the Mount Lofty Range. So lots of these legendary people clearly built those mountains with their bodies. The story of the Nugurandari dreaming from the Murray River website goes like this. In the dreaming, Nugurandari traveled down the Murray River in a bark canoe in search of his two wives who had run away from him. At that time, the river was only a small stream below the junction with the Darling River. A giant codfish, a ponde, swam ahead of Nugurandari, widening the river with sweeps of its tail. Nugurandari chased the fish, trying to spear it from his canoe. Near Murray Bridge, he threw a spear but missed and was changed into Long Island, Lintilan. At Tylem Bend, or Tagalong, he threw another. The giant fish surged ahead and created a long, straight stretch in the river. At last, with the help of Nepele, the brother of Nugorandari's wives, Pandi was speared after it had left the Murray River and had swum into Lake Alexandrina. Nugorandari divided the fish with his stone knife and created a new species of fish from each piece. Meanwhile, Nugorandari's two wives, the sisters of Nepele, had made camp. On their campfire, they were cooking bony bream, a fish forbidden to the Garanjeri women. Nugarandari smelt the fish cooking and knew his wives were close. He abandoned his camp and came after them. His huts became two hills and his bark canoe became the Milky Way. Hearing Nugarandari coming, his wives just had time to build a raft of reeds and grass trees and to escape across Lake Albert. On the other side, their raft turned back into the reeds and grass trees. The women hurried south. Nugarandari followed his wives as far south as Kingston. Here he met a great sorcerer, Parampari. The two men fought, using weapons and magic powers until eventually Nugarandari won. He built Parampari's body in a huge fire, symbolized by granite boulders today, and turned north along the Kurung Beach. Here he camped several times, digging soaks in the sand for fresh water and fishing in the Kurung Lagoon. Nugarandari made his way across the Murray Mouth and along the Encounter Bay coast towards Victor Harbor. He made a fishing ground at Middleton by throwing a huge tree into the sea to make a seaweed bed. Here he hunted and killed a seal. Its dying gasps can still be heard among the rocks. At Port Elliot, he camped and fished again without seeing a sign of his wives. He became angry and threw his spear into the sea at Victor Harbor, creating the islands there. Finally, after resting in a giant granite shade shelter on Granite Island, Kaiki, Nugarandari heard his wives laughing and playing in the water near King's Beach. He hurled his club to the ground, creating the bluff, and strode after them. His wives fled along the beach in terror until they reached Cape Jerpus. At this time, Kangaroo Island was still connected to the mainland, and the two women began to hurry across to it. Nugarandari had arrived at Cape Jervis, though, and seeing his wives still fleeing from him, he called out in a voice of thunder for the waters to rise. The women were swept from their path by huge waves and were soon drowned. They became the Rocky Pages Islands. Nugarandari knew that it was time for him to enter the spirit world. He crossed to Kangaroo Island and traveled to its western end. After first throwing his spears into the sea, he dived in before rising to become a star in the Milky Way. And those are just a handful of these wonderful dreaming stories that they have. The first settlers would come in 1802, and these were British sealers. They kidnapped Tasmanian indigenous women to bring with them as wives, and the way we heard it described is that they were mistreated at first, but eventually the men began to respect them because they knew how to live in the untamed land of this third largest Australian island. 
Many of the kidnapped Aboriginal women tried to escape by crossing Backstairs Passage, and this wasn't just by boat. Several swam for freedom and died trying. Records indicate that only one woman ever made the swim alive. The British would start colonizing South Australia in 1829. Kangaroo Island would be colonized in 1836, and this brought a farming community in that displaced the first islanders. By the late 1870s, only three Aboriginal women still remained, and they were named Saul, Suki, and Betty. Betty's descendants still live on Kangaroo Island. There was not only sealing and farming here, but also salt harvesting. Whaling stations were set up in the 1840s at Doyle's Bay, D'Estrie's Bay, and Hog Bay. In 1852, the first lighthouse was built at Cape Willoughby. This was desperately needed as the waters off of Kangaroo Island were treacherous. More lighthouses were added through the years with Cape Borda Light Station in 1858, the Cape du Kudik Lighthouse in 1906, and Cape St. Albans Lighthouse in 1908. The waters wrecked many ships like the Cutter William heading for the whaling station in Hog Bay on August 23, 1847. The greatest loss of life came in 1899 with the Loch Sloy wrecked in Mopertuis Bay. 31 people drowned. Other shipwrecks were the Loch Venachar in 1905 and Portland Maru in 1935. The first colonial settlement was Kingscott, and it is the island's largest town. There are around 4,000 people living on the island, at least there were until the bushfires. A ferry brings people in and out along with supplies. There's also airplanes that come in. The island has become known for its wine and honey that comes from the Ligurian bees, and it's a popular tourist destination. We wonder how many of those tourists know they are wandering onto a haunted island. Before I talk about some of the hauntings, I wanted to share a few fun facts that I found about Kangaroo Island. Kangaroo Island is seven times the size of Singapore at 2,734 square miles. At its narrowest point, it's just a half mile wide. Flinders Chase National Park was established in 1919 as a bit of sanctuary for those suffering from what they called brain fag, according to the park's founding father, Samuel Dixon. I had to look that up. Apparently, it's a syndrome that was discovered in Nigeria, and it was described mostly happening to high school and university students with symptoms including sleep-related issues, cognitive complaints, head and neck pains, difficulty in concentrating, and eye pain. It's caused by excessive external pressure to be successful among the young. And at first when I looked it up, it was, was this syndrome a myth or a reality? So it's apparently something caused by stress that affects you mentally, gives you some mental disorders. So if you are having any of those issues, I'd say a vacation to Kangaroo Island would do you well. And it looks like a beautiful place anyway, so it would definitely help you to relax. As I said, Kangaroo Island was named because of the kangaroos that are there, and they are slightly different from the mainland ones. They have longer fur and are darker in color. There are these trees there called Tate's grass trees, known as yakas. They grow 0.5 to 2.5 millimeters a year, and until 1997, their red resin was harvested to make a gum used in fireworks, of all things. Those Ligurian bees that I mentioned on Kangaroo Island are the world's largest pure population, and Kangaroo Island was the world's first bee sanctuary established in 1885, so I thought that's pretty cool, especially because our bees are dying off, so we need all the sanctuaries they can get. What look like stalactites at Admiral's Arch are, in fact, fossilized roots. Kangaroo Island should be known as Ile de Cray as French explorer Boudin published the first map of the island in 1811, three years before Flinders. 
There's a place there called American River, and it's on a bay, not a river. So I'm not sure exactly why I got that name. Remarkable rocks sit on Kirkpatrick Point, named after an 1899 shipwreck survivor. The term is from an original chart that described some remarkable rocks. And there have been more than 80 shipwrecks off of Kangaroo Island since records began in 1847. The last of its lighthouses was built in 1909, but at least 19 ships have been wrecked since then, the latest being in 2008. So when I say there's treacherous waters there, I'm not kidding. So, of course, when you've got all these shipwrecks going on, as we know with the graveyard of the Atlantic here in America, there's always haunting tales to go along with them. An interesting story popped up as I was searching for some ghost stories here, and this was about a ghost boat found off of Kangaroo Island in January 2019. Some of you may remember this teenager named Abby Sunderland. She was going to sail around the world all by herself. I think she was like 16 or something. And to me, that is awfully brave. I wouldn't want to sail around the world, period, much less all by myself. And then as a teenager, she suffered many setbacks and had various issues. Eventually, she had to abandon her boat, which was called Wild Eyes, in 2010. She had to be rescued by French and Australian authorities. That boat had been lost for eight years until it was discovered in 2019. So very interesting. There are many stories of the unexplained and hauntings on Kangaroo Island. The Aboriginal people called this the Island of the Dead for a reason. These early people were the Gar and Jerry, and they believe that the island is where spirits traveled after death. That's why you heard with some of those dreaming stories, like that last one about New Gar and Jerry, that he came to Kangaroo Island to throw himself into the sea. It's because they believe that this is where you would go after death, so I guess why not just start there? The ancestral spirits would gather here before the final journey into heaven. Another group of people here were the Ramanjeri, and they thought of the island as being the gateway to star heaven in the Milky Way. And as you heard, Nugarandari went up into the Milky Way after he threw himself into the sea. The Ramanjeri have a spirit here of a woman who died that appears to people as a small bird. I don't believe this is the same small bird that forewarns people that a family member is going to die. I think this is someone else. As is the case with many of the lighthouses around the world, Kangaroo Island has haunted lighthouses. Families who stayed in the lighthouses were very isolated because no roads linked the lighthouses to the main parts of the island. This was a very hard existence, and as we've heard all of these different stories about lighthouses that we've covered here on History Goes Bump, it was really not a place you wanted to be. You had to grow your own food. Supplies were short in coming. You'd be out there when it was storming. There was nothing to protect you. Many people lost their lives, and many of them who didn't lose their lives lost their minds because they just went crazy with the monotony of being out there. You also had a lot of hard work. We've talked about how heavy it was to carry the oil from the bottom of these towers all the way to the top to keep the lamp going but they were such a necessity because they were sometimes the only thing that kept more shipwrecks from happening. I'm going to start with Cape St. Albans Lighthouse. This one was built in 1908 out of stone and painted white. Access to the lantern room was unusual in that a cast iron staircase was built on the outside. Rarely do we see lighthouse having stairs on the outside. The tower had a fixed white light with a red sector to warn on the scraper shoal and was unmanned running off of kerosene. In 1914, the light was converted to acetylene gas. A switch to electricity was made in 1976. 
and I searched high and low and all of the lighthouses here have ghost stories except for this one. I don't know why. Maybe nobody died there. Nothing bad happened. So I don't have any ghost stories for this, but I wanted to include it because it was one of the four lighthouses that are here. Next, we have the Cape Borda Light Station. This was originally known as Flinders Light and is perched on the cliffs of Investigator Strait. Of course, that was named for his boat, which is at the northwestern corner of Kangaroo Island. The lighthouse is very uniquely shaped. Rather than round, it is square and it doesn't stand very tall. Construction was completed in 1858 and this is the third oldest remaining lighthouse. Supplies were brought in by ship and had to be hauled up the cliff edges. This happened at a lot of lighthouses, too. There was this rocky ledge all around the lighthouse, and it's like, how do you get supplies from a boat coming in up there? You just have to tie a bunch of ropes on and pull these things up. Cape Borda was automated in 1989 and is still fully operational, with even the fog cannon still being fired daily. The keeper's cottage is said to be haunted. Tourists can rent out the cottage, and several have claimed to experience weird things while there. The main spirit that is described belongs to a little girl. And I couldn't find the story behind her, but I would have to assume that her family once lived here and that she died from some kind of illness or something else, an accident perhaps. And that is why her spirit is still here at the light station. Cape Willoughby Light Station is found in Cape Willoughby Conservation Park and was the first light station in South Australia. It was first lit on January 16, 1852. The cottages have claims of unexplained stuff, creaking floorboards and fingers tapping on the windows. A man named Clive Daniels was staying there one night with his wife and family in 1993. The group soon figured out that they were not alone. Clive was playing his guitar and writing music inside the lighthouse. He was all by himself. He could feel the atmosphere changing. The air got heavier and he heard the sound of a wooden door creaking open. The lighthouse had no wooden door. And then he heard the footsteps climbing up towards the top of the lighthouse where he was sitting. Clive's flashlight inexplicably went out. The battery had been new. Then he felt a presence. An icy, cold mist surrounded him, and he could feel it watching him. He shivered. He put his guitar away and made his way down the tower as best he could in the darkness. When he got outside, his flashlight turned on again. He looked back at the lighthouse, and he thought he saw someone up at the top, a shadow figure. About a half hour after he returned to the cottage he was sharing with his wife, she awoke and felt something in the room. She woke Clive, and he thought it was the same presence as the one in the lighthouse. Then the shower turned itself on by itself. It ran for 15 minutes. What's basically going on is Clive and his wife are laying in bed. They hear the shower turn on. They look at the clock. It's something like 2.30 at night, and they're thinking, who in the world is taking a shower around 2, 2.30? but they didn't want to go check because they didn't want to disturb one of their family members who might have been showering. So they waited until the shower turned off 15 minutes later. Sounds like a typical shower. Clive's wife, Robin, found the bathroom empty and dry. No water in the shower, no warm misty air or steam on the mirror. The next morning, Clive's sister told him that a shadowy figure had come into her room during the night. She at first thought it was a piece of luggage and went back to sleep. She found a trail of sand on the floor, and no one had been to the beach. The family finally packed up and left when a newspaper on the table had its pages flipped, all on its own, right there in front of them. There was no window open, no breeze. 
What could be haunting this place? The gorge beneath the lighthouse is called the Devil's Kitchen. Several ships wrecked here, killing sailors. And a lighthouse keeper died here in the Lantern Room in 1869. So there are all kinds of possibilities. The Cape du Kudik Lighthouse has a tower with a red cap that was constructed from 2,000 pieces of local stone and a Fresnel lens made by Chance Brothers. There were three four-roomed cottages built as well for the keepers to use as living quarters. The way that supplies made it to the lighthouse was via boat, and like the other lighthouse, hauled up to the lighthouse by a flying fox winching system that was originally powered by a pair of horses. They have these visitor books there that report all the different haunting experiences visitors have had while staying here. Many people have seen the apparition of an elderly man who people believe is a former lighthouse keeper. There are weird sounds and lights turn on and off by themselves, particularly in empty cottages, which shouldn't have any lights on at all. The women who write the Ghost and Girl blog wrote an article entitled Favorite Haunts, A Sea of Ghosts on Kangaroo Island, and in that article, one of them detailed her visit to Cape Dukudik and experiences she had, writing, I was completely restless the entire first evening of our stay. Inside the cottage, it felt as though we were constantly watched. I know it sounds terribly cliche, but this sensation was so intense that it made the hairs on the back of my neck remain permanently raised, as if something was hovering just behind me, deliberately staying out of sight. Whenever I looked up or turned around or walked out of the room and into another... I could not escape the feeling that at any moment I would find a stranger staring at me from within the shadows. Then, on the first night, not long after I had dozed off, I was woken suddenly by what I thought was someone whispering in my ear, My name is John. I live in an old stone house, and am therefore familiar with the sounds that old stone houses make in the night. The pop and crack of the roof and floorboards as the house cools. The knocking of the stones and the rattle of sash windows and doors as it shifts and settles. The howl of the wind as it makes its way down the chimneys. And for the first two nights at Cape Dukudik, the wind howled and the sea crashed in a way that only the Southern Ocean is capable of. And all the noises we heard during those two nights, we could confidently say were nothing more than the normal sounds that an old stone cottage makes during nights of wild weather. On the third night, though, we were blessed with perfect calm. The eerie sensation of being watched and followed it abated. And we found ourselves quite comfortable within the walls of the old assistant keeper's cottage. It made for an undisturbed sleep. However, in the early hours of that last morning, before the sun had even peaked above the horizon, I woke from my slumber, unmoving, but fully awake and alert. Outside, it was perfectly still. Not even the sound of a bird could be heard. And then, just as it had been reported countless times in the visitors' books, there came the sound of movement from the other end of the corridor outside the bedroom. A shuffling, thumping, and tapping. The distinct sounds of someone pulling on boots, followed by footsteps proceeding down the hallway to the front door, first becoming louder at their approach before gently fading away. The tales of the ghosts of Cape Dukudik did not reveal, nor even hazard a guess at the identity of the spirit whose footsteps are so regularly heard making their way down the hallway in the cottage. I like to think that it's one of the old assistant lightkeepers making his early morning check of the lighthouse. Whilst it's easy to make assumptions... It's more difficult to confirm if any of the assistant lightkeepers stationed at Cape Dukudik and resident of the same cottage were actually named John. It'd be a neat coincidence if there was, though. Not only would it be a coincidence, it would make me think that that's who was there. <laughs> a possible ghost light was seen on the island in 1998. 
Two people were out walking on Snelling Beach on the island late at night when they saw a yellowish-white light on the hillside. This ghost light moved south along the valley at about tree level and then suddenly turned and started coming towards the witnesses. The color of the light changed from yellow to a bright white and grew from the size of a tennis ball to the size of a dinner plate. The light changed direction again and moved away from the witnesses and got smaller. A second light joined the first a little bit later, and then they both disappeared over the hillside. So it sounds very familiar to many of the ghost lights that I've heard described here in North America, like the brown mountain lights and such, just a little bit different coloring. Now, some people believe that these ghost lights are not just lights, but possible UFOs. You guys know UFOs aren't really my thing. I don't talk a whole lot about them. But there's another story here about a UFO sighting that I wanted to share. These were reported on the Haunted Adelaide blog. Alan Potter was a radio technician apprentice who was working at the Adelaide airport in 1969 tracking a Fokker Friendship aeroplane when he reported seeing a second object flying in a straight line towards the aeroplane. So you can imagine he's starting to get very panicked because he's seeing these planes looking like they're heading towards each other. Potter told ABC Radio of the incident, I still don't think I believe in UFOs, but I can't explain this. As the Fokker tracked towards Kangaroo Island, a smaller echo, much smaller than the Fokker, appeared to leave the large echo and fly in a line directly towards the plane. With one rotation of the radar antenna, that large echo had moved 70 nautical miles to the northeast. In the next pass, it had disappeared off the screen completely. So was it a UFO or something else? I don't know. The bushfires on Kangaroo Island have been devastating. Countless animals have been killed and lots of gorgeous acreage will now have to rebuild. This is a land of mystique and legends among the Aboriginal people. Are there spirits here? Is Kangaroo Island haunted? That is for you to decide. When I saw the reports coming in about this island, the name immediately grabbed me and I wanted to know more. And I started looking into what the island was like, its history, and then I went, gosh, it'd be great if there were some ghost stories here. And I found a handful of them and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this as the next episode, particularly because the entire world has Australia on our minds and our hearts. If there's any good thing about fire, it does renew the land. And so I just hope that this helps Australia to be even more beautiful than it was before. And God, please drop some rain on this country. Well, Kelly, I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to get down to Australia. We've talked about getting me on a plane for a long period of time. It's pretty difficult. (laughs) Yeah. If we do go, we better plan to be there for like a month so that we can see all these great places because I won't be making that trip more than once. (laughs) I'm game. (laughs) We'll do it. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We love hearing from everybody. Yeah, Cindy sent an email and she was wondering, you know, she hears us mentioning all the time about different podcasts that we're listening to, books that we use as sources and quote and everything. And so she'd asked if there was anywhere that we had a list of that stuff. And I was like, well, you know, we did used to keep a list of podcasts under the files tab over the Spooktacular crew. And I went in and looked and it hasn't been updated since 2016. Yikes. (laughs) I don't even think half the podcasts that are on there are even still going. They pod fade so much. But so we really don't have a list anywhere. When it comes to the books, generally speaking, if you hear me quoting from a book, I do mention it on the show. So you'd have to write it down. 
if I've linked to something, it'll be in the show notes. And all the show notes are linked in our description that comes with each one of the episodes. Right, exactly. Just reference that. Yeah, so that's the best thing I can offer. I just don't have the time to sit down and make these lists and stuff. But thanks for asking, Cindy. Absolutely. Then we also heard from Ashley. Hey, HGB, I've recently started listening and excitedly looked through your back catalog. I was especially excited to see an episode about haunted churches in York as I work on one of those churches. Wow. So we have another one. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I love listening to the stories of St. Savior's Church, which is where I work now, and wanted to share my own haunted story. One night after closing the building, we were tidying up everything and we heard a male voice very clearly say, John. There was only one male in the building at the time whose name was, in fact, John. So we teased him about calling his own name. He looked very confused and said he hadn't said a thing. A few days later, one of my co-workers was taking the rubbish out and saw someone sitting along the garden wall, just above where some gravestones are lined up. She threw the rubbish bag in the dumpster bin and turned back to chase the person off the wall. But there was no one there. It's a rather low wall, so she hurried over to the spot and looked over the wall to see who it was. But again, there was no one there. She came back in looking incredibly pale and didn't want to take the rubbish out by herself again for a while. I don't blame her. Yeah, I can't say that I do either. The church was deconsecrated back in the 1950s, so all the 19th century burials were exhumed and reburied on consecrated soil. But there still seemed to be a few lingering spirits. Of course, we're now a museum primarily aimed at children and school groups to teach about archaeology, so perhaps the spirits are attached to some of our artifacts. Just wanted to share those stories with you and say that although we've never seen the Grey Lady that's supposed to haunt St. Saviors, there's certainly someone here. Very cool. Thanks so much for sharing, Ashley. And I'm curious, perhaps do they know for certain that they were able to move all the bodies? You know we know that Mm -hmm. they usually don't. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting is one of the ghost stories with one of the lighthouses on Kangaroo Island. The girl there heard something like, I am John. So now we've got John said by a ghost twice now. You guys were sending all kinds of emails. We heard from Jacob, too. I've been listening to your podcast for just over a year now and always wanted to write in and tell you how much I enjoy it. But I decided to wait until I caught up. I just caught up finishing the Malvern Manor episode today. I found it very interesting that the end of that episode, you told a story about a man diagnosed with kidney cancer who found many coincidences talking to someone else who had kidney cancer and their mothers and all the coincidences that surrounded this, including the timing around Thanksgiving. I was blown away listening because my mother died just over a week after Thanksgiving in 2001 from kidney cancer. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? And we don't believe in coincidences. I know. (laughs) You guys all are supposed to get together and do something. I don't know what. Sounds like it. Although I was interested in ghosts and the paranormal before this, I've been more open and had all my experience since then. I just couldn't ignore the coincidence of it, that the day I made up my mind to write you, your episode took me back to my main reason for my interest in your podcast. I thank you for your podcast. It is wonderful. Just want you to know I love the show. Thanks, Jacob. Well, thank you very much, Jacob, for sharing that. Thanks for sharing. That's great. It's got to be synchronicity. I don't know. Kidney cancer, mothers, and Thanksgiving. Right. I've never put those all together, but isn't that bizarre to have three people? And It is. And I might be totally off base, but I haven't heard that kidney cancer is a super common type of cancer either. I wouldn't think so. And of course, our best wishes to everybody that is dealing with that ugly C word. Absolutely. I also want to thank Devion for sending us an email, letting us know how much you are enjoying the podcast. Boyd shared something really cool in the Spooktacular crew. 
In the year 1877, a graveyard tale had its beginning. I'll tell it like I heard it, but as you're aware, truth and legend are sometimes two different things. So here's the legend. I hope you don't mind the long read. Thank you. Coleman Maybrier and Douglas Williams didn't really care for each other, but both were avid coon hunters and both had the best hunting dogs in the county. Doug had his favorite dog, a gray hairy called Old Blue. Coleman's wife, Nancy, was passing the Williams home one day on her way to the store to trade a basket of eggs for sugar and coffee. Old Blue saw her and took off after Nancy. She ran, but the coon dog nipped Nancy's leg, tore her dress, and the eggs were dropped. Nancy made it home and told Coleman. Seeing the tooth marks on his wife's leg and the torn dress, Coley fetched his rifle, loaded it, and headed for the Williams' home. Old Blue repeated the attack, only this time it was against an armed, pissed-off hillbilly. When Old Blue got to within 20 feet of Coley, a bead was taken, the trigger pulled, and Old Blue was dropped dead, a bullet right between the eyes. Doug Williams saw all this, and though his temper was overboiling, he knew Coley carried a pistol and thought better of a confrontation. Of course, the incident was the talk of the neighbors for a time, but was gradually forgotten. Now, on the 7th of July, the church would hold its 4th of July picnic on the following Saturday, just like today. There were many folks attending, lots of food, lots of whiskey, and lots of talk. Of course, our two main characters were there and eventually found themselves in the same little group of men discussing farm crops, politics, fishing, and coon hunting. Doug boldly stated that some bastard shot his old blue, the best coon hound in the country. Coley countered the claim with, A good coon dog wouldn't attack helpless women, and whoever owned such a dog didn't deserve to own dogs. The argument got more heated, and Coley knew Doug was carrying a pistol, so he backed off and left the group. Coley never carried his pistol on church grounds, as normally he would be armed. And on this day, all he carried was his fiddle. Coley wanted to make a little extra money to buy Nancy a new dress, so he pulled out his fiddle, found a tree stump, and began playing, hoping for contributions from friends and neighbors. No requests were made, and a contrary, Coley couldn't leave the matter be, so he started singing about an old gray dog that could no longer run up hills and down hollers chasing coons. Doug was within earshot and his temper broke. He walked up to Coley, pulled the pistol, and shot the fiddle player right between his eyes, just as he did to Old Blue. The fiddler fell dead off the stump, still holding fiddle and bow. Coleman's bones are resting in a small country graveyard at Salem Christian Church in eastern Harrison County in Kentucky. Many nights we told the story of Coleman Maybrier and would sit on the front steps of the church, just feet away from Coley's headstone. Why did we sit? It's been said that if you listen real close, you can hear someone playing a fiddle while a coonhound bays during the moonlit night. If you're lucky for this occurrence, please lay a few dollars on Coley's grave so he might buy his love a new dress. I love that story. And I did ask Boyd afterwards, even though he kind of referenced that they've been there before, whether or not he lived nearby. And he does. So maybe one day. Maybe he'll hear that fiddle playing. Exactly. Go out and take some photographs. Well, I guess you don't need to do it at night, but go out and take some photographs. What a fun He, story, he posted though. some, but I'd like to see more. Do an investigation. <laughs> Sorry. Being all bossy. <laughs> And then we heard from Vic, who goes by Valkyrie Vic over on Instagram. And she said, hi, first, I've got to say I'm loving the podcast. I'm just listening to the Haunted Derby episode. And of course, I had to apologize because we called it Derby all through that episode. Whoops. You mentioned the skull that was found at one of the pubs during renovations. I've actually handled it. I went on a ghost tour around Derby that went in this pub. The tour guide got a sack from behind the bar and asked who wanted to go at the Lucky Dip. Being a bit ghoulish, I stuck my hand in the sack and pulled out the skull. Later in the underground tunnels, I heard a baby cry, which no one else heard. It was a ghost tour to remember. Interesting. So then I just said, I would have handled the skull. How about you, Kelly? Possibly. I don't know. <laughs> it's like a chance of a lifetime. I don't know. You'd, how many yeah, chances Yeah, I suppose. You I don't know if I would like hold it in my hand. Yeah, I don't know if I would pull it out of the bag. I would probably touch it. <laughs> I'm not sure. And then I said the baby crying really interests the heck out of me because I've heard 
that this is a common phenomenon when a trickster spirit is around. And I heard that a lot when we were watching Hellier. They talked about that. I remember. And yes, I've heard that in prior instances as well. I hear from a lot of people that they feel bad because they can't monetarily support the show. The greatest support you can give us is by sharing the show. So if you love it, please share it. And I don't know if people have seen, but I've been putting up in the stories for HGB on Facebook. When people have shared on Instagram in their stories or in their feed or something, I've now been sending stickers out to those people to thank them for helping us out with our marketing. Absolutely. A little bit of swag included. So if you do that, just make sure you link us so that I will see it. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. This has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Cynthia Farley for increasing your sponsorship. You're going to be moved into a garden tomb. And welcome into the cemetery, Deborah Farenbrook. We're going to be burying you in a chest tomb. Thanks, guys. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.